Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Dellingpole. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. I've got Dr. Sam White. Now, I think in these extraordinary times, there has been a, a severe shortage of heroes. But one of those heroes is definitely, definitely Sam. Sam, I, I really salute your, your, your courage. Uh, you've done what I think so many other doctors ought to have done and haven't, which is you, you've sacrificed your career for the truth, haven't you? Almost as if I didn't really think it through properly, James, actually. <laughs> yeah. Always the best way, mate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I should say, I, I've, I've never really been terribly interested in social media. And I think at the time my uh, video, which went viral, uh, was released, I had about 11 followers and rarely used Twitter. So it was a big shock to me that a million people saw it. Uh, a million? That's really was good. A million yeah, it, it is. But a million people were never meant to see it because a million people were never meant to be awakened to another dialogue, um, to what has been a mononarrative for around 16 months now. Yeah. And of let's, course, it's that, that has got me into trouble. Let, yeah, let's 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 put you in put you in context. You, I, I want to know, mm-hmm. um, first of all, how old you are, how long you've been a doctor, what you went through, you know, what your ambitions were when you were younger, um, stuff like that. So to put you in context, I mean, yeah. you, you were you were what a, a, a GP in a, in a GP practice or what? Yeah, so um, I, I've been a GP 11 years. I've been a doctor for 17 years. And since my early teenage years, I'd always wanted to be a doctor. Uh, my dad was in the ambulance service for 30 years and my mom was a nurse for more than 30 years, I think. Um, And I think I watched uh, far too many ER episodes back in the day, you know, when I was 13, 14. Um, And so it always been my ambition to be a doctor. I initially started off training to do surgery and did various rotations as a junior doctor and then decided that a role as a journalist would be more suited to me given how subspecialized medicine has become these days. Um, So I also, alongside when I was first qualified as a GP, helped run a palliative care hospice for about three years. Um, And I also worked as well in the emergency department. About a year, so February last year, prior to the outbreak, I joined a really nice um, practice, semi-rural, had traditional values of of primary care, whereby the patients would see the same doctor each time. Yes. So I had really great colleagues, um, lovely patients who are all welcome to the village. Dr. White, this is really nice to have you here. You know, it's a lovely job. And then, of course, shortly after that, it was announced that there was a pandemic and NHS England told us we had to close our doors and do everything that we could via telephone so overnight things changed um i just thought at the time well this is a pandemic never done this before let's do what we need to do and i went to volunteer at what was the community red hub which was to assess people who might have covid um the first time i went i remember it well because it was good friday last year 
And this was at the height of, the, you know, the beginning of lockdown. This was when everyone was losing their, their jobs and their businesses and their livelihoods. Um, and yet I didn't see a single patient that day. Okay. Uh, the next time I went back there a few weeks later, I didn't see a single patient with respiratory symptoms. It was merely people who might have a fever, have a temperature. Yeah. So I spoke to the clinical director and I said, look, we need to be clear here. This is, this should be for people who might have COVID really. And after that, they got locum doctors and nurse practitioners there to staff it. But the issue I had all along was the doors were closed and yet the GP in the community should be the patient's first point of contact um, for, with the health service. And at the same time, we were denied access to any treatments to help people. And if you think about the role of a primary care doctor, one of the, the central roles of, of a doctor in the community should be to look after patients in the community and stop them ever having to go to hospital wherever possible. Okay. And it was clear from, from early on that we had become very unscientific. We live in a post-science, post-truth era now, whereby we've had this continuous mononarrative. Okay. So when, when my video went viral, the accusations that have come back at me are that it's false information, when really it's just a reflection of scientific um, theory based on research. Yeah, don't, don't get ahead of yourself um, yet, yet, Sam, because I'll I, I, yeah, I sure. lay it out slowly. So some yeah. of these terms I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with. I think there's a lot of jargon that has crept into the medical profession in the last few years. I mean, what is, what is primary care, for example? Well, that's essentially a general practice. So, um, you know, the gatekeepers really to the NHS yeah. and the patient's first um, point of contact with the NHS. Um, it shouldn't be, unless something goes wrong, uh, the emergency department, everything should be via your GP. Right. Um, and okay. one of our main roles, of course, is to pick up the early stages of cancer, for instance. Yes. Yeah. You know. Things like that. Okay. So, so, and yeah, I, I'm old enough to remember an era where one did have a family doctor and, you know, you knew the yeah. doctor's name, you saw him socially as well, you know, like in the way that same way you'd see the vicar socially, you know, at, 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 whether it was the village fate or, you know, you knew who your doctor was and you had a relationship with mm. them and they looked after your children when you had children and, and you, the doctor would watch them growing up. And then things changed, and 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 the, it seems to me that the cult of the of the NHS be, uh, became more of a more of a thing. I, d I don't remember NHS being kind of letters engraved on our heart when I was growing up, or for most of my life. It was only sort of a a recent development. So you wanted to be a doctor in this system for for all sorts of good reasons. I mean, I imagine you wanted to make a difference. You wanted to make people well not become a bureaucrat yeah yeah no and and yeah sorry you carry on tell me a bit the, about that the well well if you want to talk bureaucracy i think that's one of the things that's um been a real failing of how politics has meddled with primary care um 
probably since the Blair Brown era uh, and the new contract uh, came in for GPs. And obviously we've seen a lot of good, very good GPs retire early out of frustration with the system. And my own frustration with the system became that instead of looking after patients, how I felt appropriate and they would feel appropriate, it was more of a tick box exercise. You know, patient comes in, a box pops up, says this patient needs this doing, give them this drug, add this drug, do this blood test. Um, and it, it's not necessarily what the patient wants. And it's not a fulfilling role for a doctor either. Um, and I sort of chatted to you earlier about how I've moved into functional medicine, which suits my style of medicine a lot more, um, which well, is well, more about getting... We'll get yeah, of course. Yeah. I just, well, I, yeah. I mean, because I think we'll, we'll have a, a chat about the, the general NHS, uh, it, the mm. right way to be a doctor and stuff. That, I think that would be an interesting yeah. second part. I just wanted to put it, because also, I imagine there may be American viewers as well who won't necessarily know all, all the terms. So it's, 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 it, if you don't mind, I'll, yeah. I'll just take you through it sort of, sort of slowly. Um, so, you you became a doctor for yeah you wanted to make a difference and you're a nice person and uh, you actually wanted to make people better rather than than tick boxes. By the way, that, that that's interesting. I, I think what you're describing there also applies in America. That increasingly your your latitude for personal decision making judgment has been taken away from you by this monolithic system. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they have their insurance tick boxes to, to go through as well, um, of course. But I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago go with Dr. Uh, Professor Lita McCulloch, and they have a lot more autonomy now when it comes to looking after patients with COVID, i.e. they can look after patients with COVID, whereas we can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that is one of the scandals we're going to come to. So... <laughs> uh easter would you say easter monday last last year was when it all kicked off and you you found yourself um running these largely empty clinics uh seeing these people who who hadn't really got covid and 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 yet the, yet the country was pretending that it was a major problem is that right yeah, I only did two sessions there, James. Um, that was enough for me to say I'm not doing this again um, because it, it, it didn't seem like a good use of my time to take me away from my own patients to go and work there to see um, women perhaps who travelled a long way to this centre with pelvic pain because that clearly wasn't COVID. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's true. So when did you, because as you know, for the last 18 months, Britain and, and pretty much every other country on earth has been told constantly by the government and by the, the mouthpieces of government that this is an, un mm. I mean, I think Boris described it as the biggest crisis since the Second World War, that this is an unprecedented health crisis in our lifetimes, that this is kind of Spanish flu mark two, um, that, mm. that this is a deadly killer and we've got to, we've got to take all manner of measures to deal with it. Is that what you believed at first? Um, for a very, very short period, I have to say, I, I knew that uh, masks um, 
for instance, um, were a, a fallacy. Uh, masks in the community were far more likely to do harm. Um, and then, of course, I realized the testing methodology. Um, and it's not just that it's a PCR, because PCR can be a good test when used for the right purposes. But what you cannot do is have indiscriminate use of PCR. It's a diagnostic tool for a clinician to use alongside clinical assessment. Now, if your doors are locked and patients can't come in, you can't do a clinical assessment. Yeah. And, it, and it didn't matter if you could do because you couldn't prescribe them anything either. Yes, that's that's true. So, but uh, what? Because I imagine this is this is a question that's puzzling a lot of us non doctors. Um, yeah. Um, how many people? How many doctors do you think know that this is not this is not a kind of it's not a major killer? Because look, you can look at the actual age adjusted mortality figures mm. for mm. England and Wales going back to. Uh, the 1930s, I think. And you can see very clearly yeah. that, that, that there has not been a dramatic spike in deaths, uh, such as you would expect if this were a kind of unprecedented health disaster. So the evidence is mm. out there. So what, what was the first indication for you that, 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 that something was, was not quite right? Um, partly from what I was seeing and hearing in the community, also from my colleagues who were still in A&E, one who said to me, we're waiting for these COVID patients yet to turn up and they haven't. And that might have been around the time that you saw doctors and nurses doing TikTok videos, uh, not necessarily in this country, but I'm sure that amused a lot of people who were losing their businesses at that time. Um, but yes, you're completely right. Um, the, the numbers that you need to look at when assessing is there a pandemic is, has there been an increase in hospitalizations and has there been a significant increase in deaths as a result of that? And that's not what we've seen compared to other years. Perhaps a bad flu season, we might say, um, but not when we consider you know, this in the, in the larger picture, going back many years of which there is data um, but if you, when we'll come on to what's happened with my own suspension and you know prosecution by the General Medical Council, but I should say that the majority of complaints about my viral video have come from medical professionals. Right. Okay. Um, and so I've since sat on international rounds committees and you know discussions with top scientists and doctors who are awake, if you like, to, to what is going on. But my biggest critics have been other physicians in this country. Yes, yeah. Well, okay, so, but, so you, you had anecdotal evidence from people working in hospitals that what, there were not, there were the, not the numbers coming, because we were, we, we the general public were told that the NHS mm. was in danger of being overwhelmed, that the beds were filling up mm. with COVID pa patients. Is that not true? I, I didn't see that, no. And the local hospital were reporting high uh, bed occupancy rates. Um, so, sorry, um, high rates of you know free, free beds when usually 
they've got ambulances queuing outside of A&E. And that was about the time that we suspect that hospitals were empty uh, um, and patients with potential respiratory infection were discharged who were vulnerable back to their nursing and residential home. And we've seen that spike in those cases of deaths among nursing and residential home residents, which still awaits audit and investigation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, there was that period when Matt Hancock effectively ordered the hospitals mm. to send these, these elderly patients back to their, their care homes. Um, and yeah. we know now that this led to, to lots of people, you know, the plague going like the rift through, through, through care homes and killing lots of bit, lots of, lots of people. So we saw that, but just, just to make it clear, are you saying that there was there was never a, a stage where NHS beds in hospitals were being so so full that that ambulances had to queue upside with people lying in corridors and and, and blah blah blah? Was this all cooked up throughout? Um, well, so this was I'm referring to the early phases of, of lockdown. Right. I'll be honest and say I don't know what happened after sort of two or three months. And I think now hospitals are probably busier than ever, catching up with work that was cancelled, elective operations, you know, outpatient appointments, but also those with um, injuries as a result of being vaccinated as well. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we can talk about. Um, yeah. Or, you know, because we've never had a period in time where we perhaps had a pandemic and then, and then vaccinated straight into that. So these variants tend to exist, like the, the Delta variant. Um, but like sort of Professor Montagnier said, you know, that's the worst thing you can do is to vaccinate only into, into a pandemic because you can encourage higher rates of uh, these, these mutant strains, if you like, yeah. um, within the community. And, and of course, you're seeing now that people being admitted to hospital are largely vaccinated and the government dismissing it simply on the basis that, well, the majority of the population are vaccinated anyway and the vaccines were never 100% effective. Yeah. Um, which isn't reflective of the true picture of what's happening at all, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Now, again, I, I want to come on to the vaccines, but I, I, I want to go through it stage by stage because I want to, I, I want to, I'm interested in, in your perspective as somebody on the so-called front line, although I think that, that, this, this, that, that, in itself, no, yeah, yeah. that in itself is a term that's been abused because it implies that, that being a doctor is like, is like being an infantryman. And I'm not sure it ever was like, an, I mean, certainly not, not in the last 18 I, months, but that, that was part no. of the propaganda war that was being waged on the public. Um, so yeah. you you saw little evidence in the early stages that people were um, dropping like flies or anything like that. Um, then mm. tell me about the kind of the pressures you came up, up under as a, as a GP. What what because a lot of us are, a lot of us are looking at this situation thinking why why are the doctors not speaking out? Why are they react? Why are they going along with this thing? Are they seeing something that, that we haven't seen or are they just lying? What's going on? I think, I think if you're an intensivist and you're working in ITU and certainly A&E now, 
um, you can you can be seeing the COVID pneumonitis and the very seriously ill um, COVID patients. You shouldn't necessarily be seeing lots of respiratory infections at this time of year, although that seems to be happening as well. Right. Um, but your perspective does um, vary according to what your specialty is. Um, and our biggest problem, I would say, in primary care um, was missing out on doing the usual work that we would have been doing, like picking up early cancers, um, like picking up early stages of heart disease uh, and getting people referred. Um, so the, the, the issue now for hospitals and primary care, even though I'm not able to be involved, um, is, is going to be one of catching up with missed diagnoses. Yes, I can see that. So um, yeah. I, I want to know when you came to the, what it was that you saw that was the final mm -hmm. was the straw that broke the camel's back what was what yeah. you know, because you, you've given up your a presumably pretty well-paid career and and the thing that was always what you wanted to do you mm -hmm. must have seen something pretty dramatic to do that so tell, tell me the story leading up yeah to that. i think I, I think so i first started to ask questions when i realized that testing was being done indiscriminately on asymptomatic people and I know as a physician of you know 17 odd years that you don't have an acute respiratory infection and not know about it even if it's just man flu okay you've got symptoms okay so there was never a need for an asymptomatic person or indeed a symptomatic person will come onto that in the community to wear a mask or be subject to um, a test which could easily come back positive and then have no absolutely no infection or significant viral load to transmit an infection onto somebody else yeah. and now we see as yeah. of last month the who say they do not recommend um testing in asymptomatics um but it's that's taken them a while to cotton on to as you know which is was quite worrying Yes, if I, just just tell me that during you, during your medical training, presumably mm -hmm. it was a given that if you are yeah. asymptomatic, with it, which means having no mm -hmm. symptoms, um, it effectively means you haven't got it. You know, your your immune system is dealing with it. You're not going to transmit it to other people. I mean, presumably that is a universal medical law. There's no, there are no exceptions where you can transmit stuff asymptomatically. Not when we're talking um, about an acute um, respiratory illness like, like, you know, a SARS type virus. No, no, exactly. Um, you need to have um, symptoms to, you know, transmit as an airborne virus. And that would include having yourself a significantly high viral load. And then the recipient effectively of that transmission would have to also have an immune system which wasn't immediately able to deal with that. Right. So perhaps someone who's elderly or frail or on chemotherapy, um, but someone who's fit and well might might their their innate immune system, the immune system you're born with, would would most likely sort of mop that up fairly quickly and would be unaffected. The other issue is that there would have been a lot of us who had a cross immunity because of exposure to prior coronaviruses. And SARS, you know, like SARS-CoV-1 
at the turn of the century. Yeah. And that was completely overlooked as well. Here's a here's a question for you. I I, I, I mean, I, this stuff may, may seem obvious to you, but it but it's quite I think it's quite interesting for for us non non medics. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you've Maybe. gone you've gone through medical school, and I I know that medical school you spend lots of time um, dressing up and wheeling trolleys through the seat the streets for student rag week, and you drink a hell of a lot. But you do also have quite you do have quite a heavy workload, and you do lo- learn loads of medical stuff. And here's here's my question to you. Given that every medical, every medic learns about stuff like asymptomatic transmission, uh, th- there's no such thing as asymptomatic transmission. I mean, it, 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 it would, it's a bizarre thing, isn't it, to, to imagine that when you haven't got a sniffle and a sore throat and stuff, that, that you can be ill without knowing it and you can be giving people this, this disease. Yeah. Why? Are so many doctors not not calling bull on this? Why are they not saying, "Hang on a second, this this is just not true"? And, and we know about masks. Masks don't work. Um, they don't they don't they don't stop transmission. They don't protect you from and not unless they're a kind of medical grade surgical mask, which you change every what forty minutes or something. But otherwise, there's no point. So why aren't they resisting? Um, well, I think I think. It's a difficult one for, for me to answer in terms of other doctors because I was, if you like, considered the oddball in the practice for ever thinking these things. Right. Um, so people are looking at me saying, well, why hasn't he had his vaccination like we have? You know, um, so it, it's quite difficult to answer. But I do think that a lot of doctors will be listening to a mainstream narrative and one which is also echoed in a lot of the medical journals as well. Um, and particularly if we talk about therapeutics that were considered early on, as soon as Trump mentions HCQ works, of course, that, that if you, know, you were considered a Trumpister, if, and that's not allowed in this country in any way, shape or form. Yes. Um, and The Lancet and JAMA, both published essentially fraudulent um, publications on HCQ and its effectiveness and had to be called out on it and do something quite unprecedented in, in actually retracting those publications. Yes. Um, and now we have two, 200 publications showing the effectiveness of HCQ and doctors all over the world using it. So I don't know why doctors in this country are not saying, why can't we use it along with other therapeutics, other than the fact that for merely mentioning it in a video, I haven't prescribed any of these drugs because I haven't been able to access them um, at all. Mm. But for merely mentioning it in a video, I now face trial by the GMC, questions about my mental health as a result. and well, I'm actually hoping that uh, well, we've asked that the trial by the GMC can be done publicly. And so the members of the general public can tune in um, because in actual fact, the science is on our side in, in that sense. Um, and if we want to talk about masks, uh, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, James, yeah. but um, not, not, not only do they not prevent transmission, if particularly if you don't have any symptoms, but we've now got evidence as uh, as we, you know, we suspected that in children, especially within minutes, they're developing dangerously high levels of carbon dioxide retention. 
And I theorize that our dental colleagues are going to be very busy over the next few years pulling out teeth because, of course, you're going to get a higher um, acidity level in the mouth. And I do wonder whether long-term mask wearing, particularly cloth masks, in people who might be working shifts, uh, you know, 11, 12 hours at a time in a warehouse and wearing a cloth mask, perhaps not changing it, are going to be picking up various types of new respiratory infections or lung disease, perhaps mold, you know, from the damp and the moisture. Um, and I think we're storing up a lot of trouble for the future just by that alone, before we even get on to the, to the vaccine harms yes, um, as well, which is a, a, a big one to, to overlook um, as a doctor in terms of what's happened. I mean, even if you considered or these vaccines were, were effective, which they're not, um, you would have to question the idea of informed consent as a doctor, because that's one of the central tenets of, of being a doctor of modern medical practice. Yeah. Um, you would have to also look at every aspect of the Nuremberg Code, which I've, I've deliberately put up along on my website, alongside a copy of the Hippocratic Oath, for, the, for members of the public to read and say nearly every one of these, you know, 10, um, you know, um, points in the Nuremberg Code, which we were a signatory to in 1947 for good reason, has been completely overlooked and dismissed. Yes. Yeah. So when you were still a GP, I mean, you no longer, mm -hmm. you no longer work at your practice, do you? you, you, did you no, I resigned earlier in the year. In, in December, I said to my colleagues, I don't want any involvement in this vaccination program. And that was based on, on my knowledge of the SARS-CoV-1 vaccination experiment in animals, which, as you know, the animals developed something called antibody-dependent enhancement multiple organ failure and died so that was enough for me to say it's highly highly immoral and unethical to have this huge unprecedented experiment allow patients to think that it's not an experiment that it's fully approved fully licensed and at the same time deny them access to proven safe therapeutics yes um Every aspect of that makes me so cross, James. And, you know, they just, they just my, my colleagues are very nice. They said, we understand. They were, you know, you get paid to go to these sites to do the extra work for the vaccination. So they were, they were happy with that. And then in January, basically it got to the point where I couldn't sleep because the narrative from the government and SAGE and all of those people was to vaccinate ever younger cohorts of people, people including children now we see for, 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 for the Pfizer vaccination who had no risk of COVID and yet had potentially unlimited, unquantifiable risk from the vaccines. Did, did you see, um, were, you, were you around long enough to see at first hand the effects of adverse reactions to vaccines or had you gone by them? Um, no, so I, I went off in February. I didn't work the terms of my uh, six months because I, I, was, I felt too anxious, to be honest. And as I said, I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping. I'll be, be honest there. Um, so 
the things I saw were that people were not being asked simple questions beforehand, like, have you already had COVID-19? And in the case of one of my patients that happened to, um, he had, he had the vaccination and then he ended up in hospital. And of course, the report comes back from COVID from, from the hospital, not as adverse reaction to vaccine, but a diagnosis of COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then what I was seeing was people in their 50s saying to me, oh, by the way, Dr. White, I felt really rough after that vaccine. I was in bed for a week, you know, felt very flu-like and everything. But they were very tolerant of it. They, they seemed to think that it was okay to have this preventative treatment and then to be in bed for a week afterwards, essentially with the illness that they were being, you know, prevented from having supposedly via this vaccine. And I I remember saying to this gentleman, um, why did you have it? You know, you're in your 50s, you're you're fit and healthy, because I I had no say over um, what was happening to my patients. They were all registered with me, but they were being booked in and sent to these external sites. So I didn't have the means to phone up 1,600 patients and say, please don't do this. Partly because they would think I was crazy as as well, going against the narrative. Um, But it seemed to be an acceptable thing just to be in bed for a week afterwards. And I don't think it is. At well, all. I mean, if you had COVID, as, as I did, I mean, you know, I, I'm in my yeah. 50s. Um, did, mm. I, I certainly wasn't in bed for, a, you know, I had a couple of nights of, 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 yeah. of, of, of sweat, of, you know, I, I, I soaked a T-shirt uh, and I had a sore mm. throat and I had the, sort of the dry, dry hacking cough for a, for a, a period. But mm-hmm. I, I, I carried on working. Um, hmm. and, and yeah. t- 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 tell me on, on, on that point because I was very puzzled by this I'm, I'm shocked even by this I, I got a letter from a, a, a sort of a, a medical centre not my GP practice inviting mm-hmm. me in for my, for my um, COVID shot no questions asked and I've yeah. had okay in my past I've had a pulmonary embolism yeah I've, 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 mm-hmm. I've um, had to be treated for that um, and I, I've already had COVID. Now, tell me, shouldn't shouldn't those 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 two things have been taken into account before they just drag me in for a kind of routine, you know, get a shot? Yeah, and that's exactly because of my the stance I've taken. I'm hearing from a lot of people with similar backgrounds. Um, this week, a gentleman emailed me, very intelligent chap, and he asked his surgery at the time should I be having this vaccination given that he has a particular um, blood disorder whereby he's more likely to form a clot? Um, And if you don't know the mechanism of action of the spike protein, for instance, which clearly there wasn't an appreciation of that, he he was told it's safe for him. Um, He's now, he's developed, you know, a clot in his leg. And I suspect he's got... um, or will develop pulmonary hypertension and we can talk a little bit about that um but you you with your previous i don't know if your pulmonary embolism was what's called provoked i.e you know you had a risk provoked provoked Provoked, yeah okay so i would still say it would be relatively contraindicated and given that you're perhaps fit and well 
anyway other than that. Yeah. And yeah. what we know now about the pro-thromboembolic risks of the vaccine, there's no way you should have ever been told it's safe for you. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. we can broadly divide the vaccine injuries into hematological, so to do with the blood, or, or, or you know, immune-mediated, so effect, affecting the immune system, um, neurological, and one of the important ones when we consider younger people is cardiac, okay? Um, and people who want to listen uh, to my podcast with Prof McCulloch, who's a cardiologist, is on, is on my website, drsamwhite.com, and he is seeing these patients, usually adolescent boys, young boys more than, more than women, who are having sky-high cardiac enzymes indicating um, injury to the heart, um, corresponding changes on their ECG, which measures the electrical activity of the heart, and a reduced pumping effect of the heart on their echo scans. And he's saying, I don't know if this is going to be permanent in these young boys. You know, and some of these young young boys are ending up on heart failure medication as a result, and that's now in the thousands. Those numbers. Okay, so again, it's a similar question: Are you the only mm. GP who know, who's aware of this stuff? Does it, is everyone else just doesn't nobody else look at yellow cards and VAERS reports or, or what? I well, no, I'm not, but. Um, a lot will remain anonymous and yeah. um, will do so because of what's happened to me. So um, the idea is obviously to make an example of me so that no one else dares come forward. And um, I, I, I spoke to you via email about what the Royal College of GPs said in, in regard to Dr. Jane Barton, who was murdering people with morphine um who had gone to the to her hospital for rehabilitation so the idea is that they'd be there for a week few weeks and then would go home they didn't actually strike her off um she she was allowed to retire um and they had multiple reports about shipman and did how, nothing Harold shipman the doctor who murdered how many patients over 300 over 300 right yeah I've, I've had an unblemished career. I think in total, I've had three complaints from patients in 17 years, something, something like that, which is, is not very many at all. No. Um, and and they, they were very trivial. And um, yeah, one, one of them actually apologized to me afterwards, <laughs> um, which she didn't need to do. But um, it's not a, the GMC is not there to you know, their, their, their mantra is to protect patients and guide doctors. It, it doesn't seem to be doing that <laughs> over the last 16 months. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be protecting patients or guiding doctors. And, and when we come back to this issue with Dr. Barton, the Royal College of GPs said that um, whistleblowers need to feel empowered and protected to be able to come forward about systemic failings and I think we've got a profound systemic failing in the health service at the moment. And yet my whistleblowing has resulted in a, you know, a ton of, you know, slanderous accusations um, and, you know, reports of me giving out misleading information for merely quoting VAERS, yellow card and the European reporting system. Yes. You know, 
Have Have you heard? I I had a whistleblower um, from a, a, mm-hmm. a GP practice in the north. Who, she was a receptionist, but she obviously had access to lots of information about patients. Yeah, she told me that her the doctors in her practice when anxious patients called in after adverse reactions the doctor's first priority was to assure them that these reactions had nothing to do with the jabs have you heard of that yeah. going on yeah i have and a few people have emailed me and shown me text message responses that they've received because you can text message a patient now from the computer system um, to, to reassure them that it can't possibly be due to the vaccination. And that might be borne out of the fact that what I warned about initially was we don't know enough about how these vaccines work to be able to say um, how we would manage people when something goes wrong. Okay. Um, and that that's a real issue because these patients may be presenting to their GP or to hospital um, with vague symptoms or very obvious symptoms it varies um but us not necessarily know how to do with to 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 deal with them um there's preliminary report actually which is quite interesting that with regards to you talking about having previously had a pe so that's a blood clot on the lungs um one uh, doctor started looking in more in depth at this because he was finding that his patients were saying that they had reduced exercise tolerance. You know, they, they were previously able to walk to his surgery and then then couldn't. So he began um, doing uh, re- research, looking at a blood test called the D-dimer, which you probably would have had done back, back when you were diagnosed initially, which is a blood test that gives you an, an indication if someone is having a blood clot. And what he found is that within one week of vaccination, around 65% of patients are showing high levels of this D-dimer, okay? But they're not necessarily showing up as having obvious blood clots. And the blood clots are not necessarily happening in the big vessels, okay? They're happening in the, the microcirculation. So they could be missed on a scan or they could be missed by a clinical diagnosis, yet over time, they will have clinical impact and clinical significance. Oh, do you mean they're like a sort of unexploded bomb waiting to go off? Yeah, yeah. I mean that you actually, it's happening in the the, the microvasculature, so not necessarily picked up on all of the scans that would be requested, um, and happening in these small vessels, but to enough of an extent to cause a difference in gas exchange so that the patient gets short of breath, fatigued, and then it's going to put a strain on the heart as well. So they develop problems like heart failure two or three years later, which would have been an issue for you if you'd not been diagnosed and treated with presumably um, blood thinning medication at the time. Yes, I I had the expensive one. I had rivaroxaban. Um, rather than the bloody yeah, room where you've got it, where you've got to go in for checks uh, all the time. 15 tests a day. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, doc- yeah. my doctor couldn't resist telling me how expensive the treatment are, was, but I thought bloody hell, given that it was, it, it was provoked and it was provoked by surgery and they hadn't given yeah. me yeah. clotting stuff beforehand. So, you know, heparin. Could, yeah. 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 So heparin would have saved me. Yeah. Anyway, um, so 
Sam, you strike me as the kind of GP I would love to have had, somebody who actually gives patients a bespoke treatment depending on their particular needs, which I think all doctors should do. Oh, t- tell me briefly about, you You mentioned hydroxychloroquine. I'm presuming you're mm-hmm. also a fan of ivermectin. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've I've actually, I actually spoke to Dr. Tess Laurie a few days ago and a couple of weeks ago, I went to her lecture because she's done a, a you know, complex review of all of the literature on ivermectin so ivermectin um, should be a very cheap drug, around $3 per tablet. Um, unfortunately, in this country, not only can we not use it, but it's what's referred to as a special order. Um, so unless that was changed by the NHS in terms of their purchasing power, it would be a very, very expensive drug, even if I was to, say, be able to give it to you on a private prescription. Okay. Now, when when the one of the outstanding things when Dr. Laurie was presenting to us for me was that some of the trials involving ivermectin were stopped early due to ethical reasons. Okay. Now this is fascinating. Okay. So the ethical reasons were that the doctors and researchers couldn't continue to have an untreated control group and thereby allow those patients to continue to suffer and potentially die, okay? So compare that with what we see in this country, which is basically kicking the can down the road by requesting yet another um, an experiment regarding ivermectin. And I'm fearful, I don't know, I'm fearful that they'll do with it what they did with HCQ last year in the Lancet and JAMA to fit their vaccine only agenda. Okay. So we exceeded the threshold to know that ivermectin works and works really well. And we're talking about an 86% reduction in hospitalizations. It's incredible. And I don't know if you saw Dr. Pierre Corey yelling at Congress saying, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved if we'd been able to use this drug. But that that was, you know, gold dust, really. Um, But last year, we knew enough to be able to say to the general public in the UK, we can give you ivermectin and we can give it to you safely. But that would have um, prevented the emergency use um, appropriation and authorization of these vaccines. And that was clearly the agenda instead, wasn't it? So, yes. So am I right in thinking that both HCQ and ivermectin i mean they're they're um they're generic drugs now they've they've been used so often yeah. uh, and and they're yeah. completely safe I and mean, as safe as any drug possibly can be you can get them over the counter in a lot of countries ivermectin is an antiparasitical drug um even at, even at kind of high doses it, it doesn't seem to have any ill effects so what why do you yeah. think that and, it, and it's effective so 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 why do you think that um that doctors aren't allowed to prescribe it in this country? I think it's because of what I've said, that um, the vaccine is being pushed at all costs. Yeah. And, I'm, and I, mean, I mean all costs. Um, costs as, as in costs, as in vested interests of those in big pharma um, and costs as in cost to life as well, because 
Um, the, the vaccine, when we look at absolute risk reduction, is not terribly effective. It, and yet, at the same time, we're not allowed to use things that are. So it's unethical, immoral, and I think people are needlessly suffering um, because of it, and not just suffering, but actually dying as a result. And there'll be people listening to this who've lost loved ones. Um, um, and I, I realise I'm being incredibly emotive here, but but the reality of the situation is so grave um, that and just so reprehensible of what those in charge are actually doing and doing to so many people, so many people. Yes. It's unprecedented. So let, I, I, I'm not sure how many people, it, it's hard to know how many people have actually died of, of yeah. SARS-CoV-2. Or with, yeah. Or with. Yeah, but exactly. Let, let's, let's call the figure 100,000 in the UK. I mean, plus or minus. Hmm. Um, if those, if, if those 100,000 people had been put on a, a protocol of, say, ivermectin, how many do you think would have survived? Mm-hmm. I, that's, that we'll never know the answer to now, I don't think. There is going to be a UK-wide audit into all of the deaths of COVID. Firstly, to confirm that they were actually of COVID, because remember, we haven't been able to do post-mortems. But to answer that question, you would need to know um, their medical comorbidities. And also, with drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, you need to be starting them early on um, in the disease process. If you're getting to the stage where their oxygen levels are dropping, then you need to be putting them on blood thinning medication because that's when you're getting the coagulation going on. The blood is starting to clot and ivermectin on its own is not going to help. Okay. So if, if you're going to use, I would, I would say that a good way to go would be like Zev Selenko, and his protocol, where at least for the at-risk patients, they're given, um, you know, ivermectin or HCQ and nutraceuticals, so um, high-dose vitamin D, zinc, uh, other things, coenzyme Q10. So, you know, we can't even talk about vitamins in this country. So, you well, know, why that's why. Yeah. Well, again, I I I put that on social media, and I. I just put these vitamins help your immune system and underneath appeared a little um, banner saying COVID misinformation, you know? So it's on my webpage, you know, just a basic list of vitamins we should all be taking um, because uh, essentially we can't get enough vitamins and micronutrients from our diets anymore. Even if, if you eat the best diet in the world, yes. what we've had over the last 50 or hundred years is decades and decades of erosion of soil and use of pesticides um, that we don't get the same sort of micronutrients or nutrition that we would have done a hundred years ago, you know, from, from, from erosion of soil. Um, So if people want to visit my website, there's a basic list um, including all of those things just, you know, on the blog section just to buy and and on the website, it won't come up with this is COVID misinformation. (laughs) That's good. That's good. I, I haven't got much time left. I'm, I'm going to be called off by my wife soon. I, I, I'm very happily have talked yeah. to you for, for two hours rather than one. But I yeah, wanted to talk about about you. Um, by the way, I know that you are you. Your lawyers are happy to help 
other whistleblowers. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So um, it's PJH Law. Would you mind, perhaps with your podcast, James, just drawing people's attention to the crowdfunding for our legal challenge? I'll put that. Which is. Yeah. 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 So that's to stop things like the COVID passport and to bring about private criminal prosecutions. Okay. Um, And then, of course, if anyone is interested in learning about functional medicine or anything, then that's what I'm doing from now on, drsamwhite.com. Well, tell me, tell me, what is what is functional medicine? So at the moment, we've got a system of health where you go to the doctor, you say, I've got this symptom and they give you a pill. You don't really look at the cause. Um, And there's a lot of um, people who suffer with illnesses like chronic fatigue, autoimmune disease, hormone problems that simply don't get better just with a pill for a symptom. So functional medicine, where I trained in the US, you know, it's about getting to the root cause of disease. So it's, you know, it's it's independent. So it's private, essentially, but it's I spend a lot longer. I can like spend an hour, an hour and a half with a patient to begin with. And we really try and we have access to tests that are not available on the NHS. Um, and we, we do spend a lot of time looking at nutrition, but also the gut health as well, because when we think about viruses and infections, 70% of our immune system comes from a healthy gut. So that's really important. Um, and the Western diet, um, is responsible for so many of the diseases you'll see in a typical primary care clinic, which is basically through insulin resistance. So type 2 diabetes, uh, heart disease, cancer, all of those sorts of things. Um, so it's about reversing that, looking for the causes and really trying to help people out without um, putting them on medications actually reducing their medication burden as well at the same time because we're getting to the root cause of their of their problems this sounds to me i mean it sounds to me like a a blessing in disguise you're being forced out of your gp practice because you're you're doing you're doing doing real health care now yeah i feel happier doing this sort of you know work consulting than seeing 40 patients a day where i go home um, with a feeling that I haven't really helped any of them or they, they might have left feeling, feeling unfulfilled um, because actually there was an agenda I had to fill for the health service, which wasn't necessarily what the patient came in for. Yes. Um, and the two, the two don't always match up. Well, they frequently don't match up. And, it, and it, it's resulted, I think, in a lot of people either not wanting to go into general practice and a lot of experienced doctors leaving the profession. Um, and so there's a big recruitment crisis in, in primary care. Yes. I, I can see it, if those of us who get out of this alive, which I think is not going to be as many <laughs> as we might like, yeah. that, yeah. that what's, what's happened as a result of what, what we're experiencing now is I think there's going to be a, a massive reduction in, in faith in the, in the healthcare system. People are going to realise yeah. that they've been left let down. They're going to really mistrust, distrust the big pharma companies. They're not going to just be yeah. happy with their doctor just prescribing pills when that same doctor has has given them or encouraged them to get a jab, which turns out to be the one that that killed various ones of their relatives or gave them 
life life destroying damage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of people I know are wake, waking up to what you're saying. I mean, it's, I think this is part of a general awakening. Um, yeah. Just so tell me, um, what are the what are the, the the killer things that people are eating that that they shouldn't? Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So there is on my website, if if people want, um, a variation of the ketogenic diet. Okay, yeah. and and in that you're essentially not using glucose or sugar as your fuel. Now, all carbohydrates that we consume, so basically anything that tastes nice, in the words of Del Boy, <laughs> um, but also carbohydrate is hidden in a lot of foods that people would otherwise think are good for them. You know, a lot of fruits in particular, um, often people just don't tolerate dairy and don't realize it. It might just be that a couple of days later, they start to experience a headache and they don't ever match the two together. So I see a lot of people with irritable bowel syndrome, for instance, who we go through and really break down what's causing them to react in that way. Um, because they're often told it's because of stress. But, but for me, that's not a substantial enough answer. There's clearly something in their diet that's, that's upsetting them. Right. Um, so the PK diet or paleoketogenic diet is more what our ancestral diet would be like. Okay. So it's high in micronutrients, but removes all of the kind of inflammatory foods like wheats and grain, gluten, and puts you in a state of healthy ketosis where you're using fats as your fuel. Okay. Now, once you've adjusted, which takes about 10 to 14 days, you start to feel a lot more energetic. Your brain actually works about 20% better. So you, you, you can think better and concentrate. And to give you an example, a lot of athletes are now turning to this. Because if you think about a marathon runner, they often describe hitting a brick wall around 16, 18 miles. Yeah. That doesn't happen in ketosis. They can keep going. Oh, but, but, but Sam, what if I like yeah, my yeah. fruit and my yogurt in the morning? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to put you on um, Koyo yogurts. It's the one I, I've got really used to and now prefer. Okay. Um, so they're dairy free. Okay. Oh, I used to and, have that. I yeah, mean, I just yeah. I can't be asked because it's quite expensive. It's more, it is a bit, yeah, but, but not more they expensive. do chocolate flavor now and caramel. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, dear. yeah. Oh, I know. Dear. Well, that's what they do purposely, James. They make they make the highly dense carbohydrate foods cheap and easily obvious as soon as you go into the big supermarkets. Yeah, you know. So you've got, I think, I think big your mic, making it make horrible with, noises. As soon as you go into a supermarket, you're confronted with all of these car high carbohydrate foods, um, well, and then that fits in. No, not yogurt. No, I mean biscuits. And no, bread. no, I, but I like. But I'm talking about yogurt. Are, are you saying? Are you are you trying okay. to get, you trying to uh, out of my cold dead hands? You're trying to take away my yogurt off me? Are you? I'm talking about dairy dairy free products. Oh, that, you know, come um, on. That means no cheese either. <laughs> What if, what if <laughs> you, I am... can, you can still go to France? You can still go to France. Well, no, well, maybe what about not those moment, of us but... who, who are lact lactose tolerant? Surely that's okay. I mean, it's probably some of us. You know, we've been for thousands of years. Some of us have been eating dairy products. Surely that's okay. Yeah, it's just you. 
you might be one of the lucky ones, put it that way, but it's actually a lot of people are intolerant of dairy in particular um, one of the proteins in it, casein. Okay. So what we tend to see in children is uh, dairy encourages mucus production. So they tend to be these snotty children who then get glue ear and then as teenagers get Epstein-Barr. So if you get glue ear severe enough, you end up having grommets, which can cause long-term problems. So we are talking, we are talking about preventing long-term illness, you know, but I don't want to spoil your trip. You'll be telling me I can't smoke next. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I know crazy idea like that. eh? Yeah. Yeah. Stop stop that. I I was hoping you were were going to say, don't eat, don't eat sugary stuff. And I was thinking, yeah, well, I don't eat sugary stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay. But I, I take your point and, and people can go to your website. Tell me w- one more thing before we go. Mm. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I remember a time a few years ago when I used to go, yeah, I love big pharma. I love the fact that they're, you know, they're kind of, <laughs> I can't remember why I liked them, but I just, I just thought mm. they were kind of, I thought they were kind of right wing when I thought I was right wing. And actually I now think that think of them as totally, mm. totally evil. But um, mm. uh, what was I going to say about this? About, about the, the uh, yeah, that's right. My understanding is that allopathic medicine which is basically what you what you practice in in the nhs and in gp surgeries and yeah where you prescribe pills is essentially mm. a product of the of the petroleum industry all these products are kind of yeah like products of, of petroleum they were they, they were created by the kind of people who 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 they were pushed rather by the people who, who are profiting by by all this stuff and as a result We've lost touch with many much more natural products. I mean, like witch hazel, for example. I, 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 I had nasty scratched arms from picking raspberries the other day, and and mm. I didn't want to use a big pharma product. I, I wanted to use witch hazel, which works yep. better probably yep. than. And I imagine yep. there's all sorts of folk remedies and things which have been suppressed by the medical industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I think we need to name names. Let's let's name names. It's the Rockefeller Foundation and their petroleum industry. They also they founded the American Cancer Institute when they realised you know what what they were doing as well. And I really resent the fact that our colleagues in naturopathic medicine um, are denigrated in the way that they are by mainstream medicine or modern allopathic medicine because we're talking about thousands of years of medicine. And, and functional medicine provides the scientific basis for this ancient wisdom as well. So there's a kind of a linking of the two worlds there and a crossing over, which is what I like. Um, and after my uh, coming out a couple of months ago, the Association of Naturopathic uh, Physicians offered me complimentary membership for a year. And I was absolutely delighted to join them and be able to go to their lectures. Um, you know, it's incredible. And anyone dismisses you know i go to an osteopath i go and have reflexology because i i think all of these things help and if people feel better and it helps them then there's no reason why they should be dismissed and our colleagues you know who are helping us because if you go to the doctor with back pain he can only give you painkillers and yes. put you on a long waiting list for physio or, or, you know, or you're gonna wait, you're surgery wait. yeah yeah exactly exactly and you'll sign a consent form to say, you know, you could you could be paralyzed as a result of the surgery. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you might be better off trying an osteopath first or a chiropractor. Yes, well, I, I would totally agree. And 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 this is this is the really controversial one. And I <laughs> I only realized yeah. this recently. That mm. the pharmaceutical industry does not what what are we obsessed about in medicine? We're we're obsessed about the cure for cancer. And yeah, as I understand it. The cancer has been curable for a, a really quite some time, but the doctors who know mm -hmm. this uh, uh, are quite mm -hmm. often bumped off or end up in being institutionalized or there's, it's a real no-no for, for, for providing alternative cancer treatments. And, and yet, yeah. am I right? Yeah. yeah. That's horrifying. I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I, I actually had, um an interesting meeting with a russian scientist and we went through this in some detail and some of her results were quite astounding let's let's say that in and she works mainly with cancer patients um so there's there's a lot of money james in the cancer industry yeah that's that's all we need to say on that that's exactly i don't want you to get bumped off um but uh, that's already gonna yeah i've been told my life's already <laughs> <laughs> how, how do um yeah well i mean you know join the club but how, yeah 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 how do um i mean do you know what i i i, I had a taste of this i hmm. i was once the victim of a hit job conducted by paul nurse um who who won a nobel prize hmm. sir paul nurse he is very closely associated with the rockefeller foundation you know he's, mm. he's uh, and, mm -hmm. and when he wanted he came because i was seen as a threat to to the these various vested interests because of my work campaigning against the the global warming scare you know and, and the whole yeah 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 th that whole yeah. that whole bollocks which is just as fraudulent as the as, as the allopathic medicine yeah yeah um it is when you have heart yeah yeah exactly so, so the BBC did, did a, coordinated a hit job on me with the Rockefeller Foundation. And interestingly, mm -hmm. one of the questions he asked me, because uh, he wanted, I, I, I wasn't very down the rabbit hole at that time. He said, if you had, mm -hmm. a, if you had a, a beloved re uh, relative with cancer, this is obviously his preoccupation, his way of thinking, mm -hmm. would you, would you um, take them to the doctor and, and, and see an oncologist and have conventional medicine? Or would you try the latest quack cures? Which I thought was an odd question. And I was thinking, well, I'd... I'd loaded questions, yeah, well, yeah. certainly. Certainly loaded. But, but I think my answer was something like, you know, well, I'd go with whatever seemed to be the most effective um, mm. th that I mm. hadn't made up my mind about this. And I was, I was slightly puzzled by the relevance of, of his question. Yeah. In hindsight, I see exactly why he was asking me, because he's part of that industry. Mm -hmm. he, he's pushing mm -hmm. it but so people with cancer how do they do they have to go online and, and search the sort of the, the sort of the, the the more obscure recesses to, in order to be able to access the, these these mystery treatments how does it work i'm not sure to be honest no. so my role in cancer as a primary care doctor is to pick up cancer early and at my former practice, they'd audited it actually, and my I, I was the one who picked up the most, so that was quite nice. Oh yeah. Um, well, not nice, but it was you know it was a good stat at least. And then as a community doctor, our role would then be to look after patients dying at home 
who wished um, not to be admitted to hospital or to go into a hospice. Um, so the oncologists are kind of left to it, if you like. Yes. Um, but <laughs> I remember a friend of mine saying that their role will soon be replaced with an algorithm, yes. um, which you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of in medicine. But he, he said to me, um, what you're doing is you're looking at a scan and then blood results, and then you're coming up with a chemotherapy yeah. regime. Yeah. Um, so how long is it before computer modeling does that for them? Well, aren't I right in thinking that in America, it is actually illegal to refuse chemotherapy if you've got cancer, something like that. You, you, you have to take the, 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 the conventional treatment. I suspect so in certain states, um, in states where there's perhaps a de democratic <laughs> governor. But Im imagine um, what, what, what's happened to the idea of bodily autonomy. I, I'm surely that's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, and that's that's what our letter and campaign and legal challenge is about. Is that you know we're living in this um, totalitarian medical authoritarianism, which. A year or two, well, two years ago, we would have thought unthinkable, unimaginable, yeah. because the horrors of World War II and Stalinism were never going to be repeated because of what we know about what happened. And yet here we are. Here we are. Yes. Um, and it, it's going to take us to wake up others, um, but also get the mainstream media to stop peddling the government's lies. Um, because people, I, I realized I could not compete when I was trying to have a chat with patients and discuss about informed consent or the lack of, um, I couldn't con compete with the BBC because in this country, certainly people are so trusting of the medical industry, the medical profession, but also the media as well. Um, and, and as much as we've seen people rally in London, that didn't stop us going to illegal wars in, in, in Iraq and things. Yeah. Um, so we really need to see this mass unity um, of people really being able to get in touch with what is real science, real data, and having it um, explained to them in an understandable way and not misrepresented um, by quack doctors who go on the BBC and ITV, you know, and spout, yeah. and spout lies, frankly. Yes, I agree. That's a good way to end, Sam, I think. Um, I'm very yeah. happy. Thank you for your principled stand. And I'm glad things have worked out well for you. I'll put the details about your website and about the crowdfunder at the bottom of this yeah. podcast. So people brilliant. can um, follow that. Um, everyone who's enjoyed this podcast, as I'm sure you have, um, remember freedom isn't free and um, neither of my podcasts, or they shouldn't be because they're jolly good. So please remember to support me on Patreon, on Subscribestar or via dellingpoleworld.com where you can find out how to give me PayPal donations and buy a special friend badge. Um, thank you for listening. And thank you again, Dr. Sam White, for being on the show. Thank you, James. It's been a real pleasure. Thank Let's you. hope we don't get bumped off by Big Pharma or the Rockefeller Foundation. <laughs> I'm looking over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, it might be better <laughs> given that what's given what's coming. Better off out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've still got some hope. I've still got some hope. Yeah, of course. <laughs> There's always hope. It was the last thing in Pandora's box. And anyway, at the end, you know, we've yeah. got the afterlife and you know God, which is great. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 